Live, interactive, and here to assist you if you need help. Dealing with addiction, mental health challenges, and more. This is Road to Recovery with your host, Yona Budd, only on 640 Toronto. Hey, good evening and welcome to the show. We're on the Road to Recovery. My name is Yona Budd. I'll be your host this evening, along with Heather and Natasha. We're here to help and uh, share some information and see if we can make your day a little bit better. Or maybe you can make our day a little bit better when you get to share with us. And you can do that. You can get a message to me anytime road to recovery at 640toronto.com be glad to respond and if you have ideas for a show for a segment or two let me know we'll let's see if we can include that as well so we're going to kick it off today we've got a whole bunch of stuff to do tonight so we're going to be busy make sure you got your running shoes on because you're going to, it's a very active show uh, lots going on lots to talk about we're going to kick it off though with a conversation that we i think we all need to have you know one of the things that we tell patients in my practice when i deal with patients and, that are in mental health, uh, dealing with mental health or addiction issues, we talk about nutrition. Nutrition is a big part of keeping yourself together, whether it's physical or mental health, right? Very important that you eat well, very important that you sleep well, and very important that you get exercise. So that's great for balancing anxiety, depression, low self-esteem, uh, and you know, just, just having a crummy day. You, know, you just want to get out of your skin for a little bit. That's the way to do it. That's the way to prepare yourself. That's the way to live a life to keep yourself calm and on track, you know, because I have anxiety disorder, ADD, OCD, I've got a bunch of stuff going on. Uh, I, it's very important that I eat and sleep and have some kind of exercise to the extent that I can, because when I don't, I feel really crummy and I don't feel balanced and my anxiety gets the best of me. My OCD gets the best of me and my ADD makes it such that I can't function. I can't focus. So food is so important. I know what it means, right? But for many people, Getting access to good food, simple things, fruits and vegetables, stuff that we take for granted, right? I know they cost a fortune today when you go and buy them, but it is what it is, right? So this guy, Ted Blythe is his name. He was told by his doctor that he needed to eat healthier. He needed to eat more fruits and vegetables. He had a heart condition. He had neuropathy, struggled with mental health issues from time to time, 58 years old. And he heard his doctor's warnings, but he was given, he has such limited income. He's on Ontario Disability which I know is up for discussion right now in the government, the uh, government's looking at it, uh, uh, the Ontario government, they're looking at, at increasing the number, but he makes $1,169 a month, like not enough to live on, right? So when the pandemic hit, his option there, the food and the food banks were, 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 were you know, going through food like, like crazy. They, most of them had been closed. They weren't available. Programs, you know, were, were, were starting to uh, close down. People weren't attending. Those that were in need uh, were really in need. So he jumped on an opportunity, part of a program that gives people with low income and chronic health problems a prescription, a written prescription. We did a show months ago, if you remember, about doctors providing prescriptions for uh, natural days, going out for walks and so on. You know, makes sense. So now the prescription, now we're talking about prescriptions for healthy food, right? But so he's participant in a program called Food RX. It's a pilot project launched by the University Health Network here in Toronto. And it's a not-for-profit not food share that provides more than 200 people bi-weekly with daily delivery of fresh uh, with deliveries, not daily, excuse me, delivery of fresh fruits and vegetables. So now this guy, Mr. Blythe, Ted, can make, uh, uh, you know, he makes himself healthy meals. He's able to eat properly. The idea behind this food, our X program is brilliant. It's novel, but it's obvious. Giving people stable access to fresh fruits, nutritious foods, fruits, vegetables, things like that, 
clearly will improve their physical and mental health. It's, it's beyond question. Prescribing food is not something I wanted to do as a healthcare worker, according to Dr. Andrew Buzere. He's a physician and an executive director of UHN's, uh, 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 excuse me, Gattusto Center for Social Medicine. But it's a response, he says, to a broken system. There were a record of 1.45 million visits to food banks last year in Toronto. And the latest Who's Hungry report by the Daily Bread Bank and North York Harvest Banks total represents 47% increase of the previous year. Typically year over year is 5 to 10%, 47% increase of people requiring access to free foods um, and healthy, you know, stuff that they can make a healthy diet from. Food RX was launched in the spring of 2020 as a response to increased food insecurity during the pandemic. And the concern amongst community health workers were that many vulnerable people were disconnected from their usual social support. So it was really a, a, a vicious storm, really, a tsunami of just bad stuff happening at the same time. But the proof is research has found that adults in food insecure households are more vulnerable to diabetes, heart disease, hypertension, arthritis, and back problems. Which, by the way, if these are people that are on limited incomes, and, or any income for that matter, is a stress on our medical system the stress on our social system, right? As in children, the risk of depression, anxiety, mood disorders, suicidal thoughts increases with the severity of food insecurity. And by the way, there are tons of kids out there that don't have a good healthy diet on a daily basis. One of the main goals of FoodRx uh, is um, uh, to illustrate how health care should be more than just what happens in a hospital visit or the doctor's office. So the preliminary data from the pilot suggests that biweekly deliveries are having an intended effect. Participants responding significant improvements in their quality of life, overall happiness, key, that's so key. We don't talk about that enough, overall happiness and sense of community connection. He's noticed he, the, the Ted Blythe, our friend that we we're talking about here, noticed that he feels less stressed since he's been able to eat properly. He now has the ability to have a decent meal. He sleeps better. So the pilot's intended to run for a couple of years. It's based on, on donations and uh, some government funding. Uh, Sh um, Shodomar Elliott, he's FoodShare's uh, food uh, RX coordinator, basically. Uh, and he says, FoodShare is behind this as well with the hospital system, said everyone involved in the program is well aware it's a temporary solution. This cannot be a temporary solution, my dear friends, right? Because what's happening is that there's so much going on in people's lives that if they're not able to eat healthy foods, it's gonna clearly have a negative impact on all the other things they do in their life. It's gonna have a negative impact on their ability to, to eat, to, to function properly, to perhaps go to work, to be, to be physically fit and so on, right? It definitely has an impact. So let's make sure we do a better job. Please support these organizations, provide the food and care and, uh, and volunteerism if you can and see if we can make a difference. We have so much stuff coming up tonight. Uh, we're talking uh, to the Chief Psychology of Toronto's uh, Center for Addiction and Mental Health about shelters for teenagers. We could talk about living with HIV in 2022, the stigma that's attached to that. Uh, we've got so much stuff. I've talked to my good friend, Louis March, uh, about uh, zero gun violence and what we're doing with illegal guns and kids and teens. And man, so much stuff going on that you're going to have to really pay attention. You might even have to make notes. But we're going to be back soon as soon as we take a break here. We're going to be, do some more stuff here on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. 
welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here tonight and uh, stay tuned for some really cool stuff we're talking about. Uh, you know, not everything we talk about you know, on this show, and by the way, if you don't know where you are, you're on the road to recovery, and I'm Yona Bud, your host here at 640 Toronto, so thanks for joining us. Um, listen, we're, there's lots of things we talk about uh, in this on the show. Some are more difficult to manage than others. This is a very sensitive subject. I, for, you, for those that don't know who I am, on top of being a broadcaster, I'm also a, a therapist and a crisis worker, and I provide uh, uh, residential treatment centers and not, you know uh, virtual treatment and all that kind. Of, so I'm in the game of of, of uh, therapy and crisis work. I do a lot of work with teenagers, a lot of a lot of work with 13 to 25 year olds. And in the scheme of that, there's always a conversation with a parent about what to do what to do with a kid that's not you know, towing the line, smoking dope in the house, not attending school, maybe violent, whatever. So typically, you know, the, the thing is got to throw them out, quote unquote. That leads to a whole bunch of stuff. And that's what we're going to talk about here in this segment. Uh, but there are organizations, homeless shelters that are keep trying to keep kids in school. There's a unique shelter here in Toronto that deals with that. Um, the, the, we follow a couple of teenagers in that program. Uh, but you should know that um, when this article came out that we're referring to, 222 of the city's 231 emergency beds were already filled. Uh, we're talking about kids um, in a proper youth shelter so that they're not mixed with adults, which leads to a whole bunch of other horrible stuff. But as of April 21st, there were 567 children under the age of 18 in city-administered shelters, and so some 40% of those were refugees. That number has doubled. Um, since that art, since that uh, that information, that data was gathered, if you will. Um, so, what do you do? You know, what do you do if you're a parent and your kid's not, you know, just causing such difficulty that they just can't live at home? Um, and at the same time, you don't want to completely ruin them and um, you know let them lead them on a path of maybe uh, more bad stuff, more toxic behavior than perhaps the reason you, you let them out of the house or threw them out of the house to begin with. I have an expert who's going to join me here right now. His name is Dr. Sean Kidd. He's the chief of psychology for a Toronto Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, a world-renowned facility. And uh, I have a bunch of questions for him, so we're going to introduce him right now. Uh, Dr. Kidd, thanks for joining us. That's a pleasure. Uh, okay to call you Sean? Absolutely. Cool. So, Sean, um, I don't have to get into it with you because you probably know as well as I, if not better, uh, what the impact of a, a homeless kid, so to speak, or a kid in shelter uh, has on a 15, 16, 17, 18 year old, uh, pretty much anybody, frankly, but certainly we're talking about kids in particular. Um, give us an idea of the psychological impact that, that being, quote unquote, thrown out of the house or asked to leave, uh, being dismissed, not being able to live at home with your folks, uh, the impact that that has on, on kids uh, psychologically. Yeah, so so it's, is profound. I think, I think as you've alluded to the, the, um, the challenges that young people face, and I think it's important to recognize too, that the vast majority of young people who find themselves out of shelter um, and out of home um, are, are on larger trajectories of having challenges that, that occurred before they ever experienced homelessness. So most are, are heading out to the streets and, and heading out to housing precarity already having significant challenges. And for some, maybe around a third or so, you know, those challenges um, have included, you know, experiences of neglect and abuse and uh, alongside of, you know, there can be turmoil and challenges in the school, bullying, um, interactions with mental health and justice systems. So these are, these are longer paths and, and it, that don't just begin 
when a person becomes homeless. Um, but then once, once experiencing homelessness, everything really just compounds rapidly uh, and it, it includes exposure to violence. This is one of the, the biggest things that, and the most challenging things that, that people of any age, but youth in particular face and victimization. So kind of entering a very adverse um, situation without supports um, uh, alongside, you know, the physical health side is, is exposure to physical health risks and malnutrition, all these pieces and disconnection, you know, loneliness and disconnection from schools and other institutions that support young people. So, you know, there's, there's an array of challenges that, that happen. And, and, you know, what happens in, in, around homelessness is the longer you're out there, the worse off you are. It's, it's what could be called a dose response scenario where the more ex- homelessness that you're exposed to, um, you know, the greater your mental health challenges. And, and ultimately, you know, homelessness is, is fundamentally traumatic. Um, and that's what happens. And we're talking about kids here, you know, uh, for the most part, we're talking about kids who, like you said in, in, your, in your opening, uh, that, you know, are already challenged with all kinds of other mental mm-hmm. health issues, anxiety, whatever, uh, personality disorders, you know, toxic relationships, whatever, right? So um, we're going to get to them. In, in, so I guess the natural question would be, take a step away from the kid for a second and the impact it has on the kid. Um, it's very difficult for family, for the parents, right, mm-hmm. to, to, to deal with it. So I guess the question then becomes, and I hear this from family members all the time, what other choice do we have? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and that's fair. And I, I mean, thinking about the past into homelessness, I think a proportion for sure will have families that are experiencing just, just this exact struggle that you described. Um, but there still are a, a, a fairly substantial number of young people who come through um, justice systems into homelessness or have problematic transfers out of child protection, um, who, who don't really have the benefit of having that supportive family in the background who are concerned and are facing this dilemma. But nonetheless, you're right, there, there are large numbers that do have that situation. And, you know, thinking about those families and, and, you know, many will be facing, you know, these kinds of dilemmas where they sort of feel backed up against a wall and in different ways. Um, you know, I think, I think the main thing for those families in these tough situations is to see where they can get an opportunity to take a step back. You know, perhaps there could be some counseling, some support that could be sought to help to mediate, to help, um, yeah. help families navigate impasses, set boundaries, find some mutually agreed on expectations and engage in a process. Cause you know, I guess it'd be a fam- families that reach a certain point where it just can't be sorted out on, on their own. Um, and where, whether it's through, you know, professional counseling or perhaps having other family members um, get involved and try and navigate pieces. Like I think for the young person, the most important thing is having some kind of contact with a stable and caring adult. Now, this might not even be mom and dad. This could be a grandparent, an aunt, an uncle, but yeah. just to sustain that one contact. So maybe yeah. if they do need to step back from mom and dad, is yeah. there another person that can be there? Because that that the research shows us that that having that one contact is the is more important in the grand scheme than than you know it being mom or and or dad or not necessarily of course it could be dad and dad and mom and mom whatever yeah. the combination of parents might be um, right. is having that. I love that. I, th- I think that's that's great advice, um, Sean. This the 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 path to homelessness as it relates to. Um, the, uh, I guess, the introduction of um, substance abuse, if not, if not prior to, but certainly mm-hmm. during and thereafter. 
Um, is there, do you have a close correlation with, um, with what that looks like? I mean, kids that are ending up in, in uh, situations like this, is there, are there generally substance issues um, related to their behavior or not so much? Yeah, quite often. And as you point out, these are, these are issues that, that for, for some can certainly kind of um, be happening in line with the you know, increasing marginalization. I should say too, that, that for most young people, it's actually not what people think where it's like, you're not homeless and then suddenly you are homeless. For most, it's a process. Sometimes it can drag out for years that goes from you know, maybe a few nights away from home, couch surfing with friends, back home again, out for a little bit longer like it's a minority actually where it's kind of you know they're at home and then they've lost it entirely and don't go back um but in terms of uh, the, the substance use side is is what happens on in in street environments is that it, that's amplified because especially for younger pe- young the, the youngest of, of people that go homeless down to you know the child age range right. um they're predators uh of course in street environments um, who, who basically subsist off of whether it's cultivating addictions or encouraging addictions amongst people newer to the streets. And, and that's can often be intertwined with sex trafficking. And, and these are scenarios that, that, you know, as you might imagine, you know, you probably heard the vicious cycle frame is it just everything compounds and the longer a young person's exposed to that, the greater the trauma, the harder it is to back out of addictions and, you know, substance use increases and the substances used are more dangerous um, yeah, and it just gets more and more challenging. That's why many shelters and many organizations now is increasingly becoming the priority to turn young people around, if at all possible, as quickly as possible. So what you, if you can ideally, a young person turns up at a shelter, the best outcome is if you can turn them around. And if it's with an aunt, with a grandparent, um, back with mom and dad, if it's you know assessing, of course, you don't want to put a person back in an unsafe environment, but turning them around and getting them back out of the system as quickly as possible. Um, that's the priority. I'm talking to Dr. Sean Kidd. He's the chief of psychology for Toronto City of Addiction and Mental Health. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Kidd. Um, certainly would like to have you come back and talk about this stuff some more. You know, it, it's, it's, um, it's a difficult situation. We have uh, a lot of uh, situations where families have toxic uh, behavioral stuff amongst the kids, amongst the parents. And when kids are young, uh, even finding a treatment center of some sort is very, very difficult. That's a very difficult age to try to find the right kind of support and help for. And there are the Bond Hotel here in Toronto is also open to teens. Uh, they're doing an okay job. I've had a couple of kids go there and get robbed and beaten up. I mean, it's not a good thing. Uh, love what Dr. Kidd had to say. It's important that the kids stay connected to some adult in the family, perhaps not the mom and dad where the toxic stuff all kind of took place to begin with. And I tell parents this all the time. Kids don't get messed up by themselves at 15, 16, 17, 18. They didn't get messed up by themselves. Something happened along the way and uh, we are where we are. So we can't just throw them away. Perhaps got to give them a break, but uh, we got to keep in touch for sure. More stuff coming up here. You're on the road to recovery on Yonabud 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. You are on the Road to Recovery. I'm Yona Bud, your host, and you've dialed into 640 Toronto. We're doing all kinds of stuff tonight, trying to just let shed some light on some stuff that we need to talk about, to make the world a little bit better. And um, we have an interesting topic here. Um, it, it touches my heart. Uh, I'll take you back into the 80s. Had a great friend. His name is Derek Forbes Waddell. I'm probably going to cry. His picture is up on my wall right now. He was my best friend. He was also my first gay friend. 
he really helped me deal with the homophobic upbringing and background that I came from. We were very, very close. He was at my wedding. He was at my kid's bar mitzvah. He was at everything we had. Um, and he got sick in the 80s. And he was the, one of the first people in Toronto diagnosed with HIV. And uh, we lived through it together. And he had seven and a half great years uh, and uh, succumbed to uh, an illness caused by the uh, degradation, the, 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 the lack of his ability to fight off certain germs. I miss him every day. It was a difficult time. The world's changed since then, though, right? And we think it has. I hope that it has. A lot of people were dropping dead. The whole, a lot of gay slamming, a lot of bad stuff going on in those days. Uh, the media wasn't very pleasant. Um, and we've come a long way since then. I have a guest this evening. His name is Alan Carpenter. He's an HIV advocate and a long-term survivor. And by the way, his mom turned 92 yesterday. So happy birthday, Florence. Florence Carpenter. I want to make sure she's hearing. And uh, the whole world, the 100,000 people that are listening should wish her a happy birthday. You don't have to send any gifts. Just wish her a happy birthday. Alan's going to be our guest here in a second. Uh, but the percentage of people, uh, the stigma that's attached still of the one in five people living with HIV are denied all kinds of health services because of the stigma and, and discrimination. We don't talk about it much anymore, but it's out there. And 80% of Canadians living with HIV have concerns about disclosing their status. They don't really tell people. They're worried about that. We've come a long way with treatment for the disease, but the stigma is still a devastating effect on that community. It un, 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 ultimately blocks access to testing, treatment, support, friendships, organizational activities. Alan Carpenter, as I said, is an HIV advocate and a long-term supporter. He plays his part in helping dismantle the stigma for this year's June HIV eatery, June 14th to 16th, should all attend it, put on by Casey House, a great organization supporting people uh, in challenging times, where he will be one of many HIV chefs, actually, he's an excellent cook, serving guests for a three-night dining experience. Alan has an incredible story about fighting against stigma surrounding his HIV challenges, and we're going we're gonna to welcome him right now. Good evening, Alan. Good evening, and thank you for inviting me on your show. It's a pleasure. And again, congratulations on your mom turning 92. That's a big deal. Um, so give us a quick, you know, we have limited time here. I, I, I'd like to talk to you all night, but we have limited time. Give us an idea of kind of your story. Well, I, uh, I came out as gay in the late 70s and moved to Toronto in the early 80s. And uh, that's when basically all the uh, upwork came about the discovery of this uh, gay cancer. And uh, we were kind of foolishly ignored it because we just came out and we were happy to find out that we had a community to be gay and that we were learning how to live our own life in the city. And uh, when this hit, uh, nobody had a clue what was going on. And uh, it was fear. And uh, if it was in fear in us, the public was even more scared. Right. So it was challenging and uh, very stressful. And how did you make your way through it, brother? Give me an idea of the journey. Well, uh, I was lucky. I always had a family that loved me. I was brought up to be a hard worker. I had great friends, but then the care team that uh, I discovered, uh, I wouldn't be probably alive without it. Uh, none of the pills uh, 
that they were using worked. The side effects were unbelievable. And uh, yeah, I remember you could go to a doctor two or three times a week and he would just solve maybe thrush in your throat or diarrhea. And uh, I wasn't symptomatic yet. So uh, it was scary. How long till you became symptomatic if you were at all? Well, uh, you know, I don't really know when I got it. I believe I got it in the early 80s because I vacationed in California every year and I was kind of uh, indiscreet. (laughs) So after my first partner died after six years being together and then my second partner died after six years, when I met my third partner, I felt that maybe I was a... uh, someone who uh, gave it to everybody. Yeah. So I decided to be tested in 88. And that's when I found out I was positive. And I didn't become symptomatic till about 92. Wow. So are you currently um, on any kind of cocktail? I am on uh, the Cadillac of cocktails, the, uh, the new uh, two-in-one and three-in-one cocktail with no side effects. Because back in the day, we were taking 60, 70, or 80 pills. Yeah, they remember. didn't know what pill. They didn't know yeah. what dose. Yeah. And uh, we were being experimented on. Yeah. But I didn't mind because I wanted to find a cure. My, uh, my first two partners were dead and all my friends were dying. It's almost, so like, co- it's, almost, it's almost like living in the middle of the opioid crisis, right? It's, yeah. uh, and, that's where I hear and, that same story. And every month you learn something new. Uh, T-cells, I had no T-cells. Then they found out about viral load. My viral load was 350,000. They uh, told me to quit my job, go home and write a will, uh, stay away from stress. Uh, you got a year to live. And this is in 93. I guess I hope they fired that doctor. Yeah. And uh, well, it wasn't the doctor's fault because they were learning too. Yeah. And uh, once you get a good doctor and you realize that you have to do the work, you have the responsibility to do your part. You can't sit there and say, poor me. You have to say, okay, I can't work. This is my job. What do I have to do? And then by the time they got the right pills, this cocktail comes out. They got the right dose. Things like diarrhea, projectile vomiting, uh, got thrush, uh, KS. My first uh, lover went blind, wasting. All that ended. So let me ask. Let me ask you something. And move on a little bit, if you don't mind. I mean, it's. I, I want. I'd love to hear the whole story. But um, give me an idea of the current hardships that people with HIV are facing in 2022, in terms of stigma, discrimination. Uh, I touched on it a little bit, but actually living through it and being someone that's out there mm-hmm. advocating uh, to make the world a better place for those that are suffering with HIV or have HIV disease. Um, give me an idea what that discrimination and stigma looks like today. Well, I'm surprised that uh, <laughs> the amount of it that is still there. I'm, I'm always shocked when something happens to me, an incident, and uh, it hurts. Yeah, and uh, when Casey House found out uh, in 2017 that 50%, 53% of care, care, Canadians 
wouldn't knowingly eat a meal cooked by someone who is HIV, I said, oh my God, what's this? I, they can't get it from my food. So they started a smash stigma campaign and we did the first June's HIV eatery and they even made a documentary about it. And it was so joyful to, to, to educate people. Give me a, give me an idea, excuse me, about the event at Casey House right now. What, what, what's the event coming uh, up? This is the fourth one I'm doing, and it's June's HIV Eatery, which is sold out. It's on June 14th, 15th, and 16th. And can people come? Can they make contributions? Can, uh, they, can they make donations? Tell they me how can this works. always, always, always make donations to the Casey House Foundation in any way, shape, or form. Okay. Uh, there's so many volunteers, peer programs. I'm part of an outpatient day program. I'm a senior now. I'm disabled. I'm a cancer survivor. I need them more now yeah. than I needed them 20 years ago. Amazing. Um, and, go ahead. And, you know, even today, uh, I got a rash about three months ago and a qualified uh, skin doctor said, I got the rash because I'm HIV. That's like, uh, I'm not an HIV person. I'm a person living with HIV. I love it. And that's where Casey House comes in. Because not only do they listen to people, their first question is, how can I help you? So that's many people don't know how to hear. Yeah. And this Casey House group hears us and does what they can to give us some quality of life, because that's all we want. We want quality of life. We want to be a part of society. We want to love people, and we want to pay back. We want to help people. I'm talking to Alan Carpenter. He's an HIV advocate and long-term survivor and just a really cool guy. Uh, if you've been listening and you just you know want to take the guy and give him a hug, I certainly do. Uh, I want you to pay attention, though. June is HIV and eatery, June 14th and 16th. Make sure you get out there, support Casey House and all the work that they're doing. Uh, thanks for being here with us, Alan. We'll have you back on again for sure to see how things are, are moving forward. When we come back, we got more stuff to do. You're on the road to recovery. I'm Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. Okay, welcome back to the show. Thank you for joining us. This is Yona Bud here, and you're on the road to recovery here at 640 Toronto. Thank you for joining us. We know you have other choices, and we're glad that you chose us. As we continue our show tonight, just sort of highlighting some things that we think I don't know, you'd like to find out about, maybe make you feel a little better, sleep a little easier at night. Uh, so one of the things that um, it's kind of been a pet, not a pet peeve of mine, but certainly something that I've been paying a lot of attention to. Uh, so there's a backstory. So about, I don't know, a year and a half ago or so when I was interviewing to uh, be a host here at 640 and um, guide you through this couple hour period on Saturday night, one of the guys that interviewed me is a fellow named Larry Gifford. He is... Um, the uh, national um, content guy, I think, the national director, talk radio. Actually, he's my boss. He's my boss's boss, to be honest with you. Uh, but when we first met, we kind of kicked it off, you know, really clicked on all kinds of cylinders. One of the cylinders that really worked for me is that my friend Larry is also living with Parkinson's disease. And when I say living with, I mean, like living with. The man is active. He runs a big organization. 
Uh, he's involved in some really cool stuff, which we're going to continue to talk about here. He's been on the show before. Um, and I really got into his personal voyage and challenges and just what made him him and the kind of guy that he is. And that was kind of really one of the things that steered me here versus other options, because I liked who he was and I liked who the people below him were and we're all kind of lined up. Anyway, don't want to get into this whole love fest. So I getting to know Larry um, and what was going on with Parkinson's because I really didn't have much exposure to it. Didn't know that many people with it. Now I know tons. Um, I became something called a PD Avenger. Uh, and fortunately, I don't suffer with Parkinson's disease, but being part of this organization allows me to participate in some way and be active. So what we're talking about tonight is PD Avengers, 5,300 members, 100 plus partner organizations represented in 83 countries. And frankly, before Larry got involved, it was just known as the Michael Fox organization. And they did a bunch of good stuff, but not what we're doing now. Larry's my guest. He's joining me this evening and welcome to the show. I guess it's still maybe late afternoon in Vancouver, right? <laughs> That's all right. I can I can pretend it's later. <laughs> there you go. Uh, anyway, buddy, welcome to the show. So I've been following you on social. Um, you're a busy guy. Like you're yeah. like you're you're like globe trotting and running around. Um, and frankly, every time every picture I see, and I see many, I don't see a cane, I don't see a walker, I don't see anything. And my first question is, how are you managing and doing all this and fighting your own challenges? Yeah, so I, I, I uh, sometimes have walking poles if I know I'm going to be in a big crowd or if I know I'm going to be like in an airport. Right. Um, if, I, if I need space or circumference because I get anxiety. Right. Uh, but I, I've, I've done a lot of physical therapy to get my gait so where if I'm just doing a normal trip or just around the block or whatever, I don't need my poles anymore. But I used to use them almost all the time for walking. So um, that's, that's a positive story, right? Like, I mean, that's, yeah. that's moving in the right direction. So listen, well, I, go ahead, please. No, I was no, just no, going to no, say no. that's, that's the one thing that even people with Parkinson's don't realize is just because you have restrictions today doesn't mean that you can't address them. Uh, you know, they're the, the, the physical therapists, the, the occupational therapists, the vocal therapists, I, I, I use them all. <laughs> Amazing. So I was, I watched a show called Ray Donovan. I'm now watching it, I think, for the third time because there's nothing else on TV. It sucks. Um, and one of his brothers, his name is Terry, developed Parkinson's disease. They say he was hitting the head a lot when he was a fighter. It's all about the boxing family, so to speak, and gangsterism and so on. Anyway, without getting into it. So in one of the episodes, Terry had implants. Because uh, you can see the, the the scars on the top of his uh, forehead, and right. it shows him now many episodes later with these implants. His shaking has stopped. He doesn't have the same uh, severity in terms of uh, uh, how the disease manifests itself, and so on. Um, is this like is this TV stuff, or is this really happened? And if so, how many people know about it? Uh, well, no, it's 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 one thing uh, that can work for some people. It's called okay. deep brain stimulation. Okay. Um, and it's, it's, you know, now they've created it so like they can actually, the doctor can remote into your device and adjust it while you're, uh, one of my friends was actually on a ski hill and had it done. Yeah, it's kind of queer, kind of weird. Um, that's a whole nother, That's a whole nother show we got to do about the technology, yeah, right? the technology um, behind, and, behind this. Yeah, and, and it's done. Um, you know, there's quite a few people that get it, but it's not for everybody. So it will only like it, it will help some of the movement issues, but it won't help the non-motor issues. So 
Uh, and there's a lot of non-motor issues that come with Parkinson's. So uh, you, you have to be a, the right candidate. You have to get screened for it. I'm in line to have uh, DBS surgery cool. because in British Columbia versus Ontario um, or any other province, we have a four-year wait just wow. to see the doctor because there's only one doctor that does it. Well, I, got, I have an extra bed here. You can always come see somebody, <laughs> see somebody in Ontario. So listen, I, I want to get, uh, buddy, you look good. You sound great. Um, I'm really happy for you. Sorry that you, you know, you have, I understand you got a little uh, setback with something, you know, whatever, but uh, you, you seem to be on top of things. Um, your your email to, to to me or to us this morning or some earlier uh, was or on Monday or Friday or whatever. Next Tuesday, I'll be part of a webinar hosted by the World Health Organization's Brain Health Unit. Parkinson's disease, a public health approach. We believe this is the first time who uh, the organization is focused on brain health and specifically Parkinson's is a global health leader. So the backup a little bit, this yeah. PD Avengers, this world heart, this world organization that you've put together seem to be making a difference, bro. Yeah. So we, we, this year, we, um, we introduced a new international symbol for Parkinson's at, on World Parkinson's Day. We, we alerted the WHO that that was happening and, and that all these organizations were coming together. Um, and for the first time, they actually tweeted out about World Parkinson's Day on that day. The, the, wow. Uh, yeah, so that was really cool. And then, then they invited uh, the, the two, two of us who are leaders of the uh, PD Avengers and a couple of our uh, members to uh, be part of this you know, webinar. Uh, to introduce this new technical uh, report that I actually helped to create um, uh, over the course of the last year, which is really going to set the, uh, the expectations and the minimum standards for all the UN member states as it pertains to dealing with people with Parkinson's disease. That's amazing. If, you're, uh, you, got it, if you go to World Parkinson's Day, uh, dot com, it's easy, just we'll Google it up. Uh, there's a new symbol and it's called the spark. And I love it, by the way, I'm waiting for my hat, my t-shirt, my cape, something, right? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll donate more money. Maybe I'll get something soon. Um, but the spark is our bolt of energy and inspiration for the global Parkinson's community. Larry, it's a home run. Yeah, no, it's great. I just uh, put together a video from all the stuff that around the world, I mean, I, I probably have, you know, something from most every country uh, around the world, they, they we really embraced it. And uh, they, all the feedback's been really positive about it. What's the, um, I don't want to ask you what the end game is, because the end game is treatment and or being able to you know eradicate Parkinson's like any other horrible life-threatening disease. Uh, but in terms of the goal for PD Avengers and all these, uh, this growth, this, this international growth, where are you going and how are you going to know you got there? Well, so uh, part of it is to, to be taken seriously on the international stage. And so that's happening as we grow. Sure. Yeah. Um, and to, you know, we, we, want, we want to be a loud, uncomfortable, uh, ever-present voice um, to saying, adding urgency to the cause of ending Parkinson's. So one would say, and maybe it's just isn't appropriate and I might get fired, but you almost want to do a Black Lives Matter approach here, right? Make, well, enough, I, make, enough, just, no, make enough noise. I mean, that's an organization I look at that really got a lot of attention. Uh, yeah, and you, you could take a lot of examples. You know, yeah. uh, polio, for instance, yeah. uh, way back when they did the uh, March of Dimes. Um, and they said, you don't hear about to, anymore. To the White House. Not, right. Because you don't hear about uh, that stuff anymore. The, right? the AIDS uh, epidemic, they... I mean, they were there was a huge uh, advocacy uh, appeal um, where they you know chained themselves to the White House and 
Uh, you know, you'll remember that. And they, they had the, the Diane's and, uh, and then like you take a look at Mothers Against Drunk Driving and, and what they've been able to accomplish. I mean, it's, it's really un- unbelievable. And so you look at all those examples and breast cancer is another great one um, and, and, and what they did. And so some of them are, it's about the people that have the, the issue. Some of it's yep. about the people affected by the issue. And I'm like, well, let's just involve everybody. Right. I'm, uh, I'm talking to Larry Gifford. Uh, we're just winding down here. He is um, the found, one of the co-founders of PD Avengers, uh, an incredible organization. Look at them up, PD Avengers, P- Paul David Avengers. Uh, it's an organization to get involved with if you know anybody. I was talking to somebody not long ago, Larry, and I got to wind down here and uh, say goodbye. But, uh, and I was talking to him. He was telling me his wife has uh, Parkinson's disease. And I said, yeah, it's interesting. So I became involved. He says, in what way? I said, became a PD Avenger. He said to me, what's that? So I sent him to the website the next day when I saw him. It's a guy I, I say uh, I meet in prayer. And uh, he said, listen, uh, it's the greatest organization we're going to get involved. So I thank, oh, that's you, great. I thank you for being here tonight. I thank you for the work you're doing on behalf of everybody that suffers with Parkinson's, either directly, Parkinson's either directly or indirectly. And like always, we'll do this again, uh, I'm sure, real soon. I'm talking to Larry Gifford. He is the co-founder of PD Avengers. We'll have him back again soon. What we're looking for is that spark. We need money. We need your involvement. We need your volunteerism. Let's do it now. You're listening to Yona Bud, Road to Recovery here, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. Thank you for joining us this evening. You're on the Road to Recovery, the second half of the show. Thank you for tuning in. If you're joining us for the first time this evening or for the first time ever, this is a show that's based on helping you help others and me help you and we help each other. And it's just a help fest here trying to help everybody get through the other side, trying to get on the best part of their day and maybe help uh, understand how to get through those days that are more challenging than others. And we'd love to hear from you this evening, right? This evening, give us a call. It's an interactive show, 416-870-6400, 888-225-8255. We're opening the um, phone boards right now allow for callers to come in. So get into the queue. Question is, have you traveled recently? Have you been through the airport any time recently? If so, we want to hear from you. Have you been away anywhere? We want to hear from you. Um, and we're talking about kind of the post-pandemic or post-relaxation of the pandemic uh, time frame over the next three, in you know, the last past three, four, five, six months. Uh, give us a call. We want to hear from you. We can talk about it on the air together. So if you remember a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about some anxiety. I had about an up and coming trip and I was going away uh, with my boys and uh, some of their friends for a, a bachelor party. Anyway, the, the, we, we went away. I, I've been back. I'm back now almost a week. We went away and I want to share my experience. It was um, really, I mean, from a father's perspective to be with his three sons and their friends uh, for a four day uh, extravaganza of food and such and uh, lots of fun and excitement and giggling and late nights and it was amazing. But I'll tell you something, it was a different perspective for me because as you may know, if you've been following the show, I am now you know a, a disabled person using a mobility scooter. It's the coolest scooter ever. Uh, the island we were on, um, every employee that saw me open and close this thing, airport employees saw me open and close this thing because uh, I can drive it right 
basically right to the gate of the plane till ready to get get to my seat uh and folds up like a suitcase they pr- bring it back to me it's it's really it's like watching people would say it's like watching a magic trick some uh, one of the fellows that works at the island in one of the uh, nightclubs that we attended and I folded it up to put it away for, so I could sit down and who was just amazing he called his uh, colleagues and buddies over and go watch this guy it's like magic anyway opening and closing my scooter it's a whole other show but seriously um it changed my life it gave me the ability to travel so we get to the airport I get to the airport I get to Pearson like three hours in advance I'm on a scooter walk through you know I uh, got my my suit the scooter allows me to put my my suitcase under the seat and my knapsack kind of between my legs and, and lots of room to still maneuver and such and um, I get to the I, I get through the doors and it's like a sea of people it's just like wall-to-wall sea of people so my anxiety is, you know, needless to say, a little through the roof, right? Kind of a little uncomfortable. But um, I start making my way to the counter where I have to get a, a slip or a sticker for my scooter so I can drive it right to the to the uh, doors of the plane, like like you would with a stroller or a wheelchair. Uh, so I had I wait in a small priority line, no big deal. They gave me a, a stamp to put on my thing. Uh, then I was able to kind of scooter my way through the airport. Um, priority line for people in wheelchairs and such through security as well. Um, I was able to get up long enough to walk through the, I mean, I can walk. I just can't walk very far until I start loading my spine and it becomes unbelievably painful to stand and walk. Anyway, so we get through the airport, get to, uh, to the other side of security. I get to the gate. Everything is great. Get on the plane. Everything is great. Get to the island. I get the scooter, had a little trouble opening it, but that was on me, not on the scooter. Anyway, get the thing open, uh, meet up with the, all the boys because most of us traveled on the same plane, and I see like wall-to-wall people backed up uh, at this island security desk. So they were checking pe- for people uh, and their status and whether they had a proper a visa, travel visa, to enter this particular island. And, you know, just, just by the way, just doing the paperwork to get ready for the trip and provide Providing the necessary data to get, you know, to get one of these um, passports, if you will, travel passports to get to the, this island, made it very clear that anybody allowed to travel to this island could not be sick, must have had at least two vaccines, um, and provide all kinds of necessary paperwork. And it wasn't just simple paperwork; you had to provide where you got the fa- vaccine, the date you got that vaccine, who administered the vaccine, the address, the phone number, the lot numbers of the particular vaccine, and so on. So it was very, very stringent. It took me twice to get past, uh, if you will, to get cleared, to get the approval. I was freaking out. You can imagine through the whole thing. Anyway, it all worked out well. It took us forever. I ended up going through a lineup for 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 residents because that's where someone said you're supposed to go with a wheelchair or a scooter anyway they weren't happy about it but they let me through and then i had to wait almost an hour and 20 minutes for everyone else to get through the line so traveling anywhere these days is a pain in the bum uh especially you know places like you know nice island and not, all islands are nice places where there are people coming to uh, visit resorts and stuff on different different parts of the world 
and getting out of Canada, getting in and out of Canada, as I'm sure you've read, heard, or watched on any of the media that's out there. Our friends at Global have been doing a lot of work on, on Global TV, been doing a lot of work. We've been talking about it a lot on various shows uh, throughout uh, our radio network and, you know, in all the other forms of media that's out there. People are talking about the, the, uh, the poop show, if you will, and being kind, uh, at the airport as it relates to being able to come and go. Anyway, get to the hotel. Everybody's loving me, loving me on the scooter, getting all kinds of staff support, uh, getting through lineups, getting to my room, uh, you know, I get to the front door of my, of my uh, hotel room. Uh, one of the hotel people that was helping me said, you know, would you like a disabled room, with better access? I said, no, man, I'm good. He says, well, it's going to be hard to get the scooter in through the door. I said, no, no, watch this. And of course, flipped my scooter, did the magic trick in less than 10 seconds, folded it into a suitcase with a, with a trolley in trolley mode and rolled it into the room. Uh, it was amazing. But got to remember, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy that, uh, you know, I've got, I try to look good. I've got, you know, long hair. I've got a short beard. I try to dress, you know, um, in a way that is, um, you know, kind of current, you know, as best I can without kind of being out there. Uh, so, you know, I try to be as cool as I can, right? I mean, I'm an older guy. I'm traveling with a bunch of guys. They're all 30s, 40s in great shape and muscular, and they're all monsters, right? Can you can imagine me scootering around this island through all these nightclubs and restaurants and various other things that we went to and pool areas. The, the resort had, I don't know, like 11 different pools and water slides and beach area. It was, it was phenomenal. The food was phenomenal. The, everything was phenomenal. Um, I was in the Bahamas, by the way, and I stayed at the Grand Hyatt in an area called Bahamar, uh, where the kids, uh, put, that's where they, they, uh, put this thing together. So I tagged along and it was fabulous. I can hardly wait to go back. The people of the Bahamas are amazing. They're kind. They're generous. They're welcoming. They're happy. Oh my God. I spent seven days with people that are happy. Everybody there was happy. Nobody was dragging themselves around. It was incredible, uplifting to say the least. But I also found that guests were kind of accommodating. So getting around a, this big complex in a scooter, on a scooter, uh, with not a lot of, uh, of disability access, so you had to find the right ramps. Took me a couple of days to find my way around because it's a big maze of pools and hotels and various things going on. But people were really nice and they could see me sitting by the door waiting for someone to open it. Someone would come and open it. Kids mostly, which was really, really nice. Uh, but my perspective really from traveling now as a disabled person on a four wheel scooter is that the world's pretty good and people are generally pretty kind and pretty understanding. And of course it has a lot to do with how you approach them too. So, I mean, I was buzzing around the place going, you know, old man on the scooter, watch out, beep, beep, right? So it was a question of how you approach it as well. And and I was nervous about being that guy and not being cool because I was on a scooter and, you know, I was with a bunch of cool guys and kids and kind of wanted to be as youthful as possible. Wrong. It was fabulous. People loved it. Everybody loved it. People said, oh man, cool scooter. Where'd you get that? You know, my mother needs something like that. Um, anyway, lots of fun. Had a good time, uh, short of the airport harassment um, in terms of timing. Uh, fortunately, because my scooter came up first, I was able to get off the plane first. Uh, but most of the people on our plane coming back into Toronto, um, you know, in, in blocks of 50, were on the plane for almost an hour and a half, just sitting, waiting to be called in. It's pretty disgusting, actually. I'm not sure how we get away with it in this country. It's it's almost to the level of, of customer abuse. Uh, but I guess they're working on it and reading a bunch of stuff about how they're working on it and making a difference, see if they can uh, free up some of that space at the airport and let people in sooner than later. So anyway, I, I it was great. Had a great trip. 
Nice to be home. Great to be back. Looking forward to traveling again. Scooter's an eye-opener, a, a life-changer. Gives me a, an eye, a chance to open my eyes and actually see what's going on. I'm not afraid to walk around because I don't have to walk around. Uh, and uh, the world of uh, disabled people from where I'm sitting and the way I was able to travel was uh, pretty amazing. And uh, kudos to everybody that uh, did help me out and for those that pay attention to folks like me that are on four wheels, not two legs. When we come back, we got a bunch of stuff to do. We're going to be joined by my good friend Louis March. Of, uh, founder, he's the founder of uh, Zero Gun Violence. We're going to flip, flip the switch here and talk about some crime for a bit. Um, we're going to talk about gun violence. We're going to talk about carjacking. Uh, and that's what's coming up. So stick around. Make sure you stick with me here on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. Addiction is a serious issue, and we take it seriously. This is Road to Recovery with Yona Bud on 640 Toronto. Hi there. Welcome back. This is Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery. Thanks for joining in. Uh, we're going to talk now. We're going to just turn the tables a little bit and uh, talk about some crime issues. We talk, we do all that kind of stuff here. So mental health, addiction, kids, youth, crime, crime, um, you know, just troubles like, you know, traveling through an airport, for example, as we might have just heard. So we do all kinds of stuff. And right now I'm going to turn the, the spotlight for a couple of segments on the issues that we have with illegal guns, uh, in Canada and the impact that they're having on youth gun violence and gang violence. Anyway, um, we're going to travel through. Uh, on a little trip here as a, as a Taurus PT740 Slim. This is a handgun. It's a subcompact handgun. It's light and it's easy to shoot. It fires a 40 caliber bullet. It holds six shots in the magazine, so the clip, the holder of the bullets, plus one more, so seven shots. Do a lot of damage with seven shots, right? Easy to, to speed load these clips in advance so you can smack them in and out real quick. So this gun was smuggled into Canada. It's a Brazilian-made semi-automatic. It was sold in 2014 to a man at a gun show at the Gibraltar Trade Center in Taylor, Michigan, uh, 20 minutes south of Detroit. The buyer swore in writing on a federal application that the gun was for him and that he was a U.S. citizen, according to court records and law enforcement. Uh, the Canadian citizen purchased over 30 guns from March to August 2014. Uh, he, along with several co-defendants, including, I'm not using his, their names, obviously don't want to give them any time in the sun, right? Also, a Canadian, a bunch of Canadians were alleged to have purchased more than 100 guns in a five-month span, according to U.S. indictment. Two family members uh, claim that uh, these, two of these guys were, in fact, brothers. Uh, the authorities say that that gun would be smuggled across the Windsor border, would take part in two killings in the summer of 2015, one of an 18-year-old, one of a 14-year-old uh, time to crime, they say, according to U.S. Bureau of Alcohol, Drug, and Firearms, 385 days from the time this gun was purchased to the time it was involved in two shootings, two killings. The PT-740 was one of hundreds of firearms taken off the streets. Around 318 of these classified preventative weapons uh, are, um, are, were smuggled into the country in the last year or so. The numbers are now more than doubling. 103 uh, um, homicides involving uh, handguns in 2021, Canadian statistics. You can buy a brand-new handgun in Florida for 199 bucks, according to an expert. And then in these COVID times, if you can get it to Toronto, 7000 my guest this evening is my good friend, my brother, Louis March. He's the founder of uh, Zero Gun Violence Movement. Louis, better than Hello, selling Louis. drugs, bro. Better than Hello. selling drugs from 200 bucks to 7000 The wow. markup is incredible. The markup is you know, incredible. And uh, 
that's what's so dangerous about this, right? You know, how how do you cut that off, right? You know, when people are making money by taking that risk, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, I don't think there's really anything you can buy and sell, legal or illegal. I mean, you know, bodies and, and, and drugs included, where the markup is so substantial. We, you know what, Louis, we never really talk so much about those that are buying and smuggling the guns. You and I always seem to spend time about, you know, the shootings and the gang, the gang violence and stuff, which is clearly, um, you know, your area of expertise and so on. But, you know, you're involved with, you know, a lot of discussion with different forms of government and so on. Um, um, and you know, this, uh, you refer to them, and I think uh, properly as stakeholders. Well, what's the what's the status of the stakeholder um, discussion these days? I know that there's. You were telling me, I think a couple of months ago, you were on the show as well. Uh, we were talking about the up and coming um, discussions amongst the stakeholders. Funds, you know, three hundred and eighty odd million being invested in, you know, trying to reduce gun violence in Ontario. Where are we for real, bro? Uh. That, that's a big question. We've got three levels of government. Uh, we've got the feds, we've got the province, and we've got the city. And the three of them cannot sit down at the table and come up with a plan that they all agree with because they all come at it from different perspectives. The stakeholders also, we know who they are, but when you bring them to the table, can they actually work together? And the solution to the gun violence problem is we've got to demonstrate that we can work together. We can, collab- we can collaborate, we can coordinate, but everybody seems to be working in silos. The data that is being distributed is incomplete. It's very spotty at best. Right. So even when you're making decisions regarding policy, you don't have the accurate data in front of you. And that's one of the areas where the stakeholders have to demand more accurate and reliable data. And if you have that in front of you, maybe we can come up with some proper uh, solutions. Well, what that, what that, what data are you talking about, Louis? Like, what kind of, you know, what data? We're talking to Louis March, by the way. He's a co-founder or the, the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement. Um, what are you, what are you talking about? Like, in particular, that what, what, where, you know, um, the data that you're referring to. What kind of data are we looking for, and how is that going to make a difference? The data is uh, the guns that are being stopped. Where are they coming from? Who's bringing them across the border, and how are they getting into the communities? So, the government can tell you how many guns they stopped at the border, but they cannot tell you how many got through. Right? right. And then when they do get the data, when they do have the information, a lot of stuff is still under investigation. So, they really can't tell you the full scope of what they know. And then people are trying to make decisions. Like, these kids that are using the guns, they're not the ones that are smuggling the guns across the border. Of course not. They're the ones that are the first ones that will be stopped and searched. Right. So there's middlemen in there. Uh, who are they? Uh, what are the charges? What are the sentences? Like, we have to know more information about the roots of the guns. Like, is it I-75? Like... Which states are involved? Well, that, actually, that's a, you know, you bring that up. That's, you know, part of the article I was referring to here says that the data, uh, here we go here. Uh, we're talking about the data from um, along these particular, starts from, say, basically, I-75 takes you from Florida right up to, 
to Michigan, and uh, that seems to be the, the the path that most of these guns are, are traveling on, and they're being wrapped up in plastic uh, in plastic and put in gas tanks, gas tanks, transport trucks, or in rare cases flown over the border via drone. That's the thing now. People are smuggling three, four, five guns using a drone. I, I don't think you know, buddy. I don't know if we're going to be able to actually keep track of this stuff. I think it's just. Out of control, like and, you say. And it's changing in front of us, the, the methods yeah, yeah. of bringing them across. Because we know that 80 to 85% of the guns found at crime scenes in Toronto are illegal guns smuggled across the border. Right. Well, some of the some of the statistics actually are now starting to show that it's like a fifty six forty four percent kind of thing or thirty four percent kind of thing or whatever adds up to a hundred, uh, where almost fifty fifty, where there's guns coming out of Canada and guns coming across the border. Not all of them these days, for whatever that means, are American uh, American um, originated, right? So um, we're having a hard time understanding now even for the ones in Canada, how they're like, you know, you and I talked about it last time we were on the air. There was a, a, a truck, uh, a, a truck jacking or a warehouse jacking where they what, got a whole bunch of guns. They, they found a, but they found a few and no one's ever talked about where the other 70 or 75 are. Uh, and, and, and I think, that number... and this is where it's important to get real data. Yeah. Right. You, we, like, like the information that we're getting is never complete. Like we knew that the truck had 2000 guns in it. Someone right. says it wasn't 2,000, it was 3,000. So depending on who you speak to. Then when they right. found a truck, all the guns that were supposed to be there were not there. Right. So how many guns were missing and what came of that? Nobody talks about it. There's no information on it. So there's half information, there's half that's not being told. And then people are supposed to make decisions. And I think that's why we have to have like a special commissioner assigned that is independent of all these stakeholders and agencies and government that can put this data together properly, the more you understand the problem and the nature of the problem, the better chance you have of solving it. And I think people are now beginning to realize that we don't have all the information on the table, you know. We don't have it. Who in, who in Canada, like, what is there, a, I mean, I, I might just be missing the mark here, but who in Canada, what organization in Canada is, is similar to the tobacco, firearms, and alcohol folks out of the U.S.? Do we do we have a group that does that? I don't think so. I think it's all I on the think so. of the border guards and the RCMP. I think right. so, because I think in in Toronto and Ontario and Toronto in particular, you know, they have their own, you know, alcohol people. That you know, firearms are seems to be a federal thing. Tobacco, I think, is a federal thing. Um, but I don't know that we have a specific, like you said, a specific organization that's tasked with, you know, dealing with illegal firearms, illegal alcohol, illegal illegal tobacco. Um, I know that it's, we right. talk about you're, you're it. Right, but, we've got the Minister of Public Safety, we've got right. the Minister of this, and they all have a piece. But there's nobody that has the complete uh, responsibility, right? And job yeah. So the, and, and the problem is that, that we need to do right, right? Because no one wants to take responsibility. No one's no one wants to be that 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 organization or that agency that's held responsible for the killing deaths. And one of the, we're going to take a break here in a minute. And if you can, please stick around. We'll have you come back here after break. But um, one of the things that I've been reading here uh, in the U.S. in particular, I think, uh, or maybe a Canadian Canadian law, that people are starting to get charged with um, starting to get charged with crimes. Like, for example, as they were with you know, if you're charged with dealing fentanyl and it leads to death. 
there's a likelihood you could be charged for murder. They're now suggesting the same thing that that uh, there's that that people should be charged with criminal negligence causing death after the gun had been sold. So someone caught caught selling the gun is as responsible perhaps as much as the person pulling the trigger, and I think that might make a difference. As soon as we come back here, we're going to continue the discussion with my good friend Louis March. He's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement, and uh, we need him now more than ever. You're on the road to recovery. This is Yona Bud, 640 Toronto. You're listening to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. It's 1033. Do you know where your children are, your loved ones? If not, you should probably find them. If you can't find them, pets included, by the way, you should uh, reach out 911 and get the help that you need. Give us a call here sometime if you need some help, 416-870-6400, or you can call me anytime, 877-777-5808, 877-777-5808. Be glad to help you or send us an email here, Road to Recovery at... 640toronto.com. Uh, we're talking to my good friend, uh, Louis March, um, founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement. We're talking about gun violence, guns in particular. Um, border Canadian Border Service Agency seized a vehicle recently. Inside the vehicle was a so-called trap compartment, hidden compartment, often costs many dollars to manufacture and install. Uh, secreted 20 firearms, including several 40 caliber Smith & Wesson handguns, seven or 9mm Taurus pistols with silencers. So you don't need a silencer if you're going to hunt for anything, right? You only need a silencer if you're going to hurt somebody you don't want anybody to know. Anyway, so it was these were traced back to southern Florida. Bottom line is that uh, we're understanding now, according to Global News, um, that the flow into Canada, that the criminal agencies are now understanding that Texas has become a leading source uh, with about 160 weapons, uh, Florida with third at 159, Georgia, Georgia and Michigan. Uh, so we're now understanding this I-75 corridor, Louis. Uh, welcome back. Um, Louis March for the Zero Gun Violence Movement. Um, Louis, we're um, now understanding this I-75 corridor from Florida up through the Great Lakes. That seems to be where um, the ATF and the American folks uh, see the trafficking. Uh, I don't get, you know, I guess our, our borders are porous, bro. I think that's an accurate statement. The thing is, even with the I-75, so we know which guns are coming along there. We know we know the uh, the routes that are taken. But it's the other routes that we're not talking about. Right. Like, are there trains? Are there buses? Boats. Are there boats? Right? So yep. the criminal mind does not have a pause button. They do not take a break. They they reimagine their business and the best way to do their business as laws, policies, regulations change. Right. So we have to be ahead of this. We have to be coordinated. We need a central database with accurate data, and they must be willing to share the information that they're getting across the nation. And this is what's lacking right now, and it's desperately needed. And I don't want it to be like a political uh, agenda item. This, we need experts at the table, because the political agenda is politically motivated for political reasons. So we let me ask you something. That, and we have to get to the the core of this. So let me ask you something. 
Okay, let me ask you something. You've been at a bunch of meetings. I assume that their meetings, these meetings are still carrying on with different stakeholders. You've been to the feds, you've been to the province, you've been to the city, and back again a, a bunch of whole different times. You make, I mean, are you, listen, I, we're good friends, right? So, uh, but at the bottom line, I, I, when I, when I see you sometimes, I see your eyes and I hear your voice, I get the impression that you're, 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 you're just seeing yourself spinning your wheels and chasing your tail. Like, are you, do you feel you're making progress or that we, I mean, clearly the work you're doing is stellar, right? So people need to understand this is the man who's behind all these community support groups and helping the families of those that, that are, that are, uh, you know, lost people in, in gun violence. Uh, without him and his crew, there, there's nobody out there doing this. And that includes friends of ours like Marcel Wilson and his team as well. So, Louis, the, the question is, are you making any progress? Sometimes I think it's one step forward, two steps backward. Uh, there's incredible people out there doing incredible work. But it's just that it's not coordinated because a lot of these stakeholders, these people, have difficulty working together where they have to share information, right? Sometimes they're competing for, for funding. Sometimes they're competing for clients. Uh, at the government level, we have a premier of Ontario that says he's from the old school. He believes in putting more boots on the ground. Right. So he takes $25 million from out-of-school programming and he gives it to the police who tell him that we cannot police ourselves out of this problem by ourselves. We need investment in communities. We need partnerships with communities. So so where's that money? Where Of the $321 million that's being spent towards this or put towards this, uh, I think that's Fed money, if I'm correct. Um, where, where's that? Like you guys, you and your we, team. We, and, we, and, we are not seeing it in the community. I don't get it. Like, We're not. It's all a policing function. So now the policing is changing the way they have to police. They're policing. Plus, they're doing social services now. Right? right? Uh, because right. they have to spend the money. And they have to show that it's not only a policing budget. It's how do we work in the community. So today, in Toronto, uh, the mayor announced that they're going to increase the amount of uh, community policing officers, Right? And they're going to be walking, they're going to be talking, they're going to be engaging community. But it has to be more than that. It has to be, how are the guns getting across the border? How is our intelligence? How is our technology being used? How are the, the border agents being trained? Right? We have, to get, we have to stop the flow of guns into the country. And you know, I think we also have to learn how to, we have to start investing and building up these communities where poverty and crime is rampant. It's well, not you, know, you know, the, the, if you talk to any of these kids, and I do, uh, that are involved in gang and gang violence, either the peripheral or actually in the middle of it, uh, we both know many of them, um, and you talk to them about carrying a gun, accessing a gun, buying a gun, flipping a gun to somebody, holding a gun for somebody, that's a thing for young kids, right? 12, 13, yep, 14 yep, year olds yep. holding guns for their older brothers or cousins or uncles or people like that. Um, there, there's no fear, bro. No, like no, there's I, no. You, you talk to these fourteen year olds and you stare them in the eye and they talk about carrying a gun in their waistband, the same as wearing a pair of running shoes. You know no, what you just said is so. There's no fear. There's no fear. In fact, they feel more emboldened, more empowered. Ah, by, exactly. By the gun. exactly. And they're taken into places where the, the least provocation is reason to pull the gun and show it. So you're not going to pay fifteen hundred dollars for a gun and just walk around with it for show. Right. You have to take it to another level. And you're waiting for the provocation to use it. But then when you have the young ones 
carrying the guns for people that are over 18 because the charges are going to be less. That takes this. That's a new, a different ball game, right? And, uh, and people have to understand it's not the 14-year-old spending the $1,500 for the piece for the weapon. They're, they're, exactly. It's out there holding it for someone who can clearly afford that. Exactly, and so so we have to get better data of what's actually going on. What is the life yeah. and times of these guns from the origination? Yeah. And also, you, you alluded to it earlier on about the charges, like accessory to crime. Like if, if the gun that you brought across the border was responsible for two homicides, you don't get off scot-free on that. Exactly. You do not. But now, so but now have, you do. But now the, you do. We have to now look at the laws. Right. Right. The deterrence, right? We're, 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 we're missing no the deterrence. real deterrence. There's no deterrence right now for the young person that walks into a classroom with a gun, knowing that he's not going to be searched, uh, and he can get away with it. But what about the teacher? What about the other students? Like, we saw what happened in the States. We've seen right. shootings in schools now in Toronto. Right. Right? Uh, so it's taken us to another level now where we have to get more serious about addressing this problem, and I'm going to continue to advocate. We need an, an in, independent commissioner that can bring all these pieces together because clearly the government cannot do it. You know, there's an article here that says even the most powerful man in the world is no match for America's gun culture. It talks about President Biden's primetime television address uh, weeks ago where he asked, was asked questions, asked questions many Canadians watching from afar have been worried about. For God's sakes, how much more carnage can we are willing to expect? How many more innocent American lives must be taken? Enough is enough. Enough is enough. He says, urged American legislatures with words said were told to him by families of victims of recent mass shootings, do something. Please, for God's sakes, just do something. And the article goes on to say that even the most powerful man in the world can't seem to make a difference. No. Like today we were at the U.S. consulate downtown with a group of American Democrats in uh, American voters here in Toronto that were concerned about the gun violence down there. And four years ago we did a march, March for Our Lives, that was in unison with... uh, what was going on in the States after the Parkland shooting. Right. And one of the speakers said, four years ago, we were here marching for our lives, for lives, about gun violence. And four years later, we're back here again. So, yeah, it becomes very frustrating in that it's like it's a broken record. It just keeps going over and over and over. And nobody is taking the leadership, the coordinated leadership, to bring all the pieces together to at least get a better idea of the, 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 the nature of this gun culture because it's changing as we speak. I'm talking to Louis March. He's the founder of Zero Gun Violence Movement and a good friend of mine, a good friend of the show. Uh, we continue to have him on to upgrade us and update us. You know, it's one of those things, you know, where you see people in the streets and you, uh, you know, talk about how horrible the homeless situation is. And, you know, you're on your way to your car from a restaurant and you see someone kind of lying in the middle of the of the street on your way to the parking lot or wherever your car's parked. And 
what do we do? We kind of just step by them and move around them and, um, you know, kind of say, oh, how sad and keep going. It's that same approach to gun violence movement, to guns violence. Uh, and because of folks like uh, Louis March and his team and colleagues were able to stay ahead of this, at least keep a voice out there. People know that we're talking about it and that enough is enough. When we come back, a real quick segment on what's going on with having your car stolen. Uh, big, big issue out there with uh, black market uh, situation with cars being um, stolen at gunpoint, knife point, bat point, uh, through violence, without violence, using tools. When we come back from uh, break, we're going to talk about that a little bit, see if we can save you from having your car ripped off right from under your nose. Yona Bud here on the Road to Recovery, 640 Toronto. Welcome back to Road to Recovery with Yona Bud, only on 640 Toronto. And welcome back. This is the last little bit of our Road to Recovery trip today. Thanks for joining us. If you're just jumping in right now on your way to listening to the news and trying to figure out who this is, my name is Yona Bud, and I'm your host this evening for Road to Recovery. And for the next nine minutes, we're going to talk about how to make sure your car doesn't get stolen out of your driveway. So, you know, and or just to the stoplight or at the plaza or at the underground parking lot at work or anywhere, right? Big issue. This guy, Nishan, he woke up on January morning to a shock. His brand new Range Rover has gone from his driveway outside his brand new Brampton home. To his surprise, the thieves had somehow evaded detection, bypassing the motion sensor security cameras, watching the driveway, leaving no sign that his luxury vehicle had ever be- had, had be- even ever been there before. And it was stolen now at 1.30 in the morning, and there was no sign of it anywhere. The last trace of the vehicle was recorded in the Range Rover app. It led to him to uh, and police to a nearby truck yard, but his vehicle was gone. We couldn't find any conclusion about what really happened, he told uh, the reporters, only able to guess that the thieves had somehow intercepted the single signal from his car's key fob. I don't do that anymore. I don't close my car door and I ask my wife not to with her car. We don't close our doors, our car doors in public anymore using our key fob. We use the thing on the door itself and we lock the door as we close it. I'll tell you why, because I know of a lot of people had their car stolen in parking lots because thieves are able to intercept your signal when you push that button. So they couldn't come to any conclusion. Somehow that they understand that was interrupted through the key fob. He left his uh, keys in the kitchen, which is not far from his garage. And I guess they picked up the signal, he goes on to say, and programmed it and drove off. So it's becoming increasingly common across GTA that um, police are saying thieves are, ha- um, are using sophisticated techniques, intercepting key fobs, crimes of opportunity, and frighteningly, a growing number are armed and violent. This is kind of a new thing, okay? The armed and violent carjacking is, I hate to say it to my American friends, but it's much more of an American thing than it is a Canadian thing. But they're able to break into your car now using technology. And once a vehicle's stolen, thieves typically can disarm or remove the GPS after a cooling off period. So this allows the thing to kind of be off the grid quite quite frankly, off the grid. And then they're usually shipped to Montreal and Halifax, and then from there off to places way overseas. The violence, though, there's an alarming amount of vehicle thefts that are being um, done at gunpoint, knife point, um, violent carjackings. People just, you know, give me your keys, you know. And what we're told to do here is give them your keys, 
Police revealed um, some videos last uh, month uh, depict robbers confronting vehicle owners almost anywhere in park- parking garages, busy outdoor lots in daytime, the middle of an intersection, staged accident. Oops, sorry, I didn't mean to bang into you. Get out of the car to look at what's going on. Next thing you know, you get popped over your head. They grab your keys and jump in the car. They don't have to grab your keys because they're still in the in the keys in the car, right? Because you jump out real quick, see what's going on. They're also able to hack into your car. So brands like Toyota Highlander and some Lexus models, um, they're able to plug in something called an X tool, and that's a key programmer. And they put it into the car's onboard diagnostic port. So somewhere in pretty much all the cars that are coming out lately, uh, I don't know how long lately is, so I'm saying lately. I don't have a specific date. Um, but they're coming out now. Uh, they have these techno- the technology. They plug into something under the dash uh, somewhere with you know, to the proper port. For, so when you take your car into the dealership and they're checking or the garage, wherever you go, uh, they're able to plug a diagnostic tool in and figure out what's going on. That's how you check computerized vehicles these days, which is what most of us drive. Sometimes thieves don't even need to physically get into the car to program the new fob, right? So they can now they're able to do it from a distance. There's something called a relay attack, and they use a device to amplify the signal, signal coming from your fob or inside your home. So if the fob is sitting inside the home, let's say inside your front door and your front door is close to the outside of the, you know, close to the street, which most front doors are, versus, you know, somewhere out of the way, maybe, you know, way into the house, maybe in a drawer, maybe into a cupboard. These days we're talking about people putting them into into, uh, devices or into cabinets that are designed specifically to block the amplification of your uh, uh, car uh, fobs to the outside world, so to speak. But if it's close enough and you're hanging on a, on a, on a key, you know, key hook or something inside the front door and they just get close enough to your driveway or in front of your home, they can grab that signal, even if you're not using the fob, and figure out a way to get into your car. It, it, there, there's definitely huge technology. But these devices are not cheap. You know, they're ten, fifteen grand, eight thousand dollars, seven thousand um, dollars. Not your average 14, 15, 20, 19, 18 year old. These aren't the people that can afford these. This is organized stuff, right? You know, the people grabbing you at gunpoint and bat point and knife point, they are the ones that are, you know, not sophisticated, don't have an investment in the right technologies and so on, much more violent. So there are things behind the rise of violence, right? It's simple. Taking a car has been left unattended and running. You know, how many people in the day, I used to do it all the time, I don't anymore, would, you know, go outside, start the car in the winter, come back inside, finish your coffee, finish getting ready, get back inside and drive away. So modern cars today have that advanced, you know, um, start, remote start uh, function, if you will, right? But for the most part, that's what people used to do. Not so much anymore, because you don't have to be very sophisticated to jump in some guy's car that's warming it up and drive away. But now what do you do with it, Right. What do you do with the car? These folks have all kinds of access to people who are shipping them in containers to places around the world where they're getting three and four or five times what they're worth. So how do you protect yourself? Number one, never, ever fight back if someone's trying to take your car. Don't resist. Give them what they need and let them walk away. Number two, put a steering wheel lock. If you've seen them before, they look like a big hunk of metal that goes in between your steering wheel, but it it renders your car impossible to drive. There's specific names for these devices, but I won't use them. Uh, There's various versions, some better than others, more uh, substantial than others. But you lock these into your steering wheel, low tech, 
and this keeps uh, thieves from being, you know, being able to drive away with your car, right? Other thing is make sure that you keep your keys away from the door, as we talked about. Uh, don't open your door using your fob when possible. Uh, but you need to understand that car theft is up 60% in Toronto. And if you got a nice car or just a car that they feel like stealing because it has some value, they're likely going to figure out a way to grab it from you. So be careful and keep your head about you. Make sure you pay attention to where you park, how you park, how you lock your car, unlock your car, who's around you. A little bit of bear spray may not be bad to carry in your hand when you're coming to your car. But again, don't fight back. Give them what they want, whether it's your purse, your wallet, or your car. It's the safest thing to do. Anyway, we're going to be back next week. So much more to do. Hopefully, you'll join us on the road to recovery. Uh, be nice to your friends. Love the ones you're with. Give people a hug and tell them you mean something to them. They mean something to you. And like my mom used to say, may she rest in peace. If you don't have something nice to say, don't say anything at all. Spread nice, okay? We'll see you next week. Yonabud, 640 Toronto.